Hello, and welcome again to the Anesthesia Compass podcast. This is Mike Dobson. I've known today's guest for decades, and he'll be well known to many of you as well. He has a lifelong commitment to the needs of our colleagues and their patients in the developing world, and has worked with a variety of organizations, including the ICRC, MSF, and Primary Trauma Care. He's originally from the Netherlands, but having graduated there, he came to the UK to train as an anaesthetist and was appointed as a consultant in cardiac anaesthesia at the Middlesex Hospital, now part of UCL in London. Having by then already spent time working in Africa, he subsequently took on a succession of long-term overseas work that took him all over Africa and also to East Timor. Eric Freder, welcome to the Anaesthesia Compass podcast. Good uh, evening, Mike. Nice to be invited. Thank you very much. So, Eric, we've known each other for many years now, and uh, you've worked in a lot of different countries. But could you start by telling us how, how you got started with uh, working in low and middle income countries? That's a that's a good question, but also a very difficult one to to answer. Whenever I get asked that question, I basically say it's by happenstance. Most of the time, my experience, and you, if you want to do it, you have to find a way to start. And once you start, it, it starts rolling and you go from one thing to the other. In my own case, I just finished medical school in Amsterdam and I came across some people who knew about MSF France and it sounded like a good idea. So I, I went to Paris and was sort of interviewed with it meant a little chat and um, I was accepted. Now, mind you, this was a long time ago and there was hardly any selection or preparation. And that's how I rolled into it. And I went to Equatorial Guinea, which was a pure disaster, but still great fun. Um, because I always wanted to, to live in tropical warm countries and, and do good. I, lived in Indonesia, Morocco for a short while as a child. So I think I got the bug that way. Um, but after Equatorial Guinea, I realized that I needed to learn some doctrine. So I went to England and learned some doctrine. And then having had contact with MSF, I was asked on a number of occasions. And then you start meeting other people and other organizations. So you roll from one thing uh, into another. So you, you said you, you came to England to do some doctoring. Did you do the um, tropical medicine course? No, I never did. I, uh, yeah, I don't know why. I always wanted to. You mean the one in Liverpool or London? Yes, yeah. I always wanted to, but I, I never got around to do it. No. So you, you did most of, <clears throat> most of your anaesthetic training in, uh, in London, in various different London hospitals. Let me just go back for a moment to Equatorial Guinea with MSF. How, how long were you there? Six months. Mm -hmm. And so what, was... what made it disastrous? Oh, good question. Well, a number of things. The whole program wasn't based on any good idea or planning. I think it was quite political. France was trying to muscle in because it used to be a Spanish colony, Equatorial Guinea, and th there was oil and they found oil now and they guessed they would find it. So 
uh, France was trying to muscle in. And that was one reason, it was just a nonsensical program. Why would you have a doctor and a nurse in a, in a village of 200 people dishing out some tablets? It, it didn't make any sense at all. And the other reason was that we as a team, four people didn't get on at all. So uh, <laughs> we, we, we stopped speaking. <laughs> but, but you know, Mike, uh, it was beautiful paradise, tropical uh, rainforest, uh, the, the sea, and it was just what I'd always dreamt of. So I thought, okay, this is a disaster, but I want more, this is good, so. But, and I realized that I was very ill-prepared for this, you know, being a, a, a generalist completely on your own. Mm -hmm. Fine, so you, you came back and uh, trained as an anaesthetist, and then since then you've worked mostly, I think, uh, outside of Europe and the, and the UK. Uh, which countries have you have you worked in for significant amounts of time? Yeah, so yeah, you're right. I trained in the UK, did also some surgery um, and got a primary FRCS, but then rolled back into anesthesia, which I'd done first um, and was a consultant for a number of years in London. And then I decided, why am I not doing what I really want to be doing? And so I left. I was in, in Sierra Leone for about three and a half years. Uh, first with MSF during the civil war. And then later I was asked to set up the first nurse anesthesia training program. Um, and then funding stopped. So I left and I went to East Timor for about 13, 13 and a half years. Uh, I was asked to go there for five months and it turned out to be 13 and a half years and there I started well I was basically general anesthetist but I I set the nurse anesthesia training and then postgraduate training for doctors and that stopped about three and a half years ago and I now back in Sierra Leone mm -hmm. to set up uh, uh, postgraduate training for doctors. So, But you, you hadn't altogether lost contact with MSF because I seem to recall that you wrote their anesthesia manual for them uh, a long while back. Yeah. 20, 20 years ago. So I, I did. did that relate to a, a, another mission, less disastrous than Equatorial Guinea? That related to my experiences as a war anesthetist during the genocide in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Because since I'd also done surgery and ICRC, the International Red Cross, had very nice little pamphlets, how to do a war amputation, how to do this, that and the other. And every so often I did that. And then I realized that I was actually making some stupid mistakes in anesthesia, like giving three mils of 5% lidocaine for a spinal. Um, and I made some stupid mistakes. Fortunately, uh, nobody was injured. And I realized, why don't we have something like a, a pamphlet in anesthesia, just pointing you towards uh, how you can do things? My impression of, of, of that book uh, that, you, that you produced for MSF was that it was nearly, nearly all about ketamine for people who uh, perhaps had never even used it before. Is, is that a fair representation? I think it's, uh, I, I hope that it was a little bit more, including spinals and, uh, and, and GAs. But yes, ketamine, of course, features mm -hmm. uh, a lot in, the, in that sort of work. Yeah. And it is true that in those days, 
a lot of people actually didn't use ketamine in the UK, certainly not. Although I think that has changed a lot now. So did you get a lot of pushback at the time from people who'd come out as volunteers and, and wanted to go on behaving like they did at home and, and uh, giving all kinds of more compli complex anesthetics? No, to the contrary. Um, I got a lot of feedback. Oh, this was this saved my life. And it was not just for war anesthesia, but other disaster anesthesia. So I think people were very positive about it. Um, mind you, it was not just myself who wrote it. You remember Peter Rossel from Belgium and mm -hmm. uh, Xavier Lassalle from France. We co-wrote it. But it was my idea because I really thought there was a need for it. It's now been superseded uh, because MSF uh, has moved forward, largely due to Xavier. And they now, you know, provide you with uh, equipment and drugs so you can actually give a proper anesthetic. Mm -hmm. Said that, of course, ketamine remains extremely useful in, uh, in wars uh, and disaster situations. Plus yeah. all the other, yeah. you know, ICU, sedation, yeah. Yeah. pain, etc. Okay, so so far we've we've got uh, Equatorial Guinea, we've got East Timor. Uh, where else? Okay, so I did very short missions in uh, where did I go? Burundi, Sudan, and somewhere else, uh, Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. and then I did some teaching missions to Mozambique uh, for update course. Uh, Myanmar was a uh, primary trauma care course, and the Gambia was an essential pain management course. Mm -hmm. And then I most of the time was Sierra Leone and. Uh, um, uh, East Timor. Yeah. Now, a lot of people listening to this have probably got some idea about what goes on anesthesia-wise in Africa. Uh, most of them, including me, have not the remotest idea what it's like in East Timor. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So in East Timor, I arrived in uh, February 2004. So it was only a few years after they uh, gained independence from the occupation of uh, by Indonesia. And so there was a lot of guilt in the international community. So there was a lot of money being poured in that country. And as a result, healthcare was free and reasonably well sourced. Now, my Australian colleagues always said, oh my God, this is awful comparing to Australia. And I just came back, came from uh, Sierra Leone. And I thought, this is paradise. How, how can you say that? We've got everything we need. And so the anesthesia is in a teaching hospital is consultant led, whereas in the rest of the country, of course, it's, it's nurse anesthesia. Uh, we have planar machines with compressed gas, uh, oxygen, no air, unfortunately. Um, don't really use drove. I used to teach it, but this is more for fun than anything else. And so, so propofol, thiopentone, vecorodium, atracurium, fentanyl, morphine. So a lot of the, the, the usual drugs and techniques we could do, and of course, a lot of spinal with uh, hyperbaric bupivacaine. Mm -hmm. um, so in that respect, it was pretty much modern anesthesia as we used to do it not that long ago in, uh, in the UK. Um, of course, not fantastic monitoring, although that has improved. Initially, no uh, entitled CO2 or gas monitoring. 
but ECG, blood pressure, oximetry, the basics were, were there. And although we, we did run out of drugs some, sometimes, basically the supplies were good. So we could actually give a decent anesthetic, unlike uh, here in, in, in Sierra Leone. And you set up a training program, I think, while you were there. Yes. So I, I, I was asked to go there for five months to train some nurses in anesthesia, which, which immediately gets my hairs up because it means that people who ask me that haven't actually thought about what they want, which suits me because it means I feel free to do whatever I think I should do. So very quickly, within I think a month of arrival, I had convinced the, the ministry that we should have a proper nurse anesthesia training program of, we decided on 12 months. I think 18 months would have been better, but 12 months work, worked out. And this was after a number of other people, uh, including Hayden, who you know well, had tried to set up various programs. And I think what happened was that I arrived, the UN was pulling out some medical uh, people out of peripheral hospitals. And what I proposed was perhaps a little bit more realistic than what had been previously proposed. And that the UN pulling out of the hospitals suddenly showed the lack of emergency care. And so they realized, oh, we, we really got to do something about this. And so I was very fortunate that within a, a month or so, there was an agreement. Then it took another six months to set it all up. And then we trained 21 nurse anesthetists over a period of three, four years, I think. And uh, it meant that every district hospital, because it's a small, small country, only five district hospitals, had a, some form of anesthesia service, some better than others, but basically there was a nurse anesthetist, at least one, in every of those hospitals. Did, and did, I thought... Did... The nurse anaesthetists that you were training, had they already been doing some anaesthesia or did they come in from scratch? Uh, the majority came in from scratch. Some of them had done uh, some had received some training mm. uh, from people who passed like Hayden and others. Um, so yes, it was a bit of a mixture. Yeah, so you have people coming in from scratch and you've only got a year. What, what were your priorities for them? Well, there is, there is a thing I call the, the paradox. And, you know, the logic seems to dictate that if you only have 12 months to train, you're going to train people to do ASA 1, ASA 2, and with some cocktails and recipes, i.e. ketamine um, and spinal. Now, we added a general, proper general anesthesia with halothane and intubation. And we were able to teach them that. But in reality, this is the paradox that when, once they go out to the district and transport of very sick patient is limited. And if you have a woman who's ASA three or, or even ASA four needing an urgent and emergency cesarean section, then they have to deal with that because a transfer may not be an option. And I call that a paradox. So the least, um, qualified and least experienced have to deal with the sickest patients in many countries i believe that is the case so with that in mind i i you know the syllabus is the same wherever you go in the world it's just pretty 
pretty similar. The, the breadth and no, no, the depth you teach in varies. But I wanted them to be able to deal with these cases. You know, I teach about neuromuscular junction and all that sort of stuff. But I don't really care whether they remember that as long as they know how to use vecarodium and how to reverse it. So I think it's a pragmatic and it's a competency-based approach. I want them to be able to do it, even, even if the, uh, the number of procedures, the, the variety is limited. You know, I'd rather have them doing two or three things well than five things poorly. Yeah. Do you foresee a time when physician anesthesia will actually reach everybody in the in the developing world? Or do you think nurse anesthesia might actually be preferable for many for some places? I, I don't know what is preferable models, but as you know, in the United States and Norway and France and Holland and half of Europe, there are nurse anesthetists. So many high income countries use a mixed model uh, to great effect. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think in a way, the UK and the, the Anglophone world, UK, Ireland, Australasia, they're a little bit different from having a consultant only service um, or doctor only service is a bit of a, of a luxury. Now I like it. I mean, <laughs> the paradox of me is that I, I uh, propagate the task sharing and, and uh, training non-physician anesthetist, but I was very happy to work and be trained in the system of physician anesthetist. So I'm a bit <laughs> ambivalent about it, I guess. A bit, bit contradictory, yes. What, what do you think that the physician anesthetist should be bringing to the job when, the, when there is this mixed workforce of, of doctors and nurses? Uh, I've, I've seen uh, frequently people, uh, doctors getting very discouraged because maybe they're only uh, three or four sorts of anesthesia they can give because that's all there are logistically and it looks on the surface like they're not doing anything different from what the nurse anesthetists do. Um, well when, when it comes to procedures and techniques that's probably correct although in some countries the nurses can't do epidurals or, or ultrasound guided blocks but I, well, I guess in the states they do. So it, it, it varies again country from country. I think what we add to the whole picture is, is that we know more about medicine, or at least we're supposed to know more about medicine and the sick patient. And since in certainly in the high income countries, the, the surgeries, therefore the anesthesia are becoming so complex in such ill patients that it really needs that whole, the whole perioperative uh, approach. Um, and I think we also, unlike nurse anesthetists in most countries involved in ICU, in pain, that doesn't mean they couldn't do it, I guess. Um, but I think certainly in this country, in Sierra Leone, and in, in most lower in and middle income countries, I think physician anesthetists certainly add a lot of, uh, lot of value. Not in doing the spinal. I mean, the nurses. I mean, the nurses teach my my residents how to do the actual spinal, but the the indication, the contraindication, the understanding, physiology, and the pathophysiology of the patient. I think that's where we still uh, add value. 
And on top of that, we of course should be the leaders and the teachers uh, for the future generations. Now, you've been in Sierra Leone now this, this time around for three and a half years, and I know you're involved in, in uh, the physician training program there. Can you tell us a bit about that? So there's the, uh, <laughs> okay, Sierra Leone, a country of seven and a half million people, has one national consultant anesthetist. And she and I, we've known each other for a long time because we got our fellowships at, at the same day in Dublin many moons ago. And uh, all and off, we kept in touch and she made sure that I got the job when it came up. So we are now two consultants in this country of seven and a half million people. Mind you, when I was there 20 years ago, I was the only one when it was five million people. And the, the government, the last government decided to, to have an act saying that they needed a teaching hospital. And for the teaching hospital, you need to do postgraduate training. And the training we follow, we follow is the West African College of Surgeons and then the Faculty of Anesthesia, of course, which has, a, has two streams, a DA, Diploma of Anesthesia, or, then, or the membership after three years the, and then the fellowship after five years. Uh, most people will want to do the member fellowship route, but they still do the, the diploma as a, as a starter. Um, and we've, we're, we're following that. And so our trainees do the ex take the exams in either Ghana or Nigeria because we, they can't sit it here. And we train them according to that. And um, how shall I say? Yeah, we, we've been successful so far. There will be a national college soon, like they have in Ghana and Nigeria, and we'll do our own exams. But to be honest, the difference between the national and the, the West African college is not going to be huge. Certainly not in the beginning, because we want to work towards reciprocity. So how, how many people have been through the training now? Well, not through the training yet, but I've got uh, uh, the most senior, he's got the diploma and the primary. You have to do the primary before you can see the membership. So that's like the old, like we used to have in the UK, the basic sciences. Um, that's one, he's the most senior one. And then we have the most junior one who just passed a, a couple of weeks ago, a primary and will sit the DA later this year. And then this is a coup. We have one trainee from the Gambia. And the reason for that is that the Gambia doesn't yet have West African accreditation and we do. And she was doing anesthesia for a number of years, not getting anywhere. So I was uh, able to get some funding and persuaded them over there to let her go. And she's been with us uh, for a year and she has passed the diploma, so she'll soon be back in the Gambia. And the reason I say it's a coup because it was really a win-win. The Gambia now has somebody with the diploma and we had more trainees and more trainees means that you can develop the department better, the training, you learn from each other. Uh, because when we had our senior resident on his own, it was lonely. It was lonely for him. It was lonely for us. And 
it was difficult to really develop as a training department. Now we're not quite there yet, but having had three, and actually last year we had four because there's one Serbian training in Ghana, but he was he came f- uh, to us for three months, but then the airspace was closed because of COVID. So we had him for six months and he's even more senior. He's about to become a member, i.e. specialist. And so it was brilliant. We suddenly had a department where the juniors were teaching each other. We were teaching, we were discussing uh, topics and, uh, and we had people at different levels. So that layering of, let's say we have students, house officers, residents, registrars, senior registrars and consultants started to t- take shape. And, uh, and I don't think we would have achieved that in, in the same way had not been for our Gambian trainee. In the course of your time, and obviously you've had a long-term commitment and you've stayed in a number of places for years at a time. Have there been many Western short-termers turn up and, and uh, to uh, help you? And have they actually helped? You know, to annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in, in Timor, I, I worked and also was for a while the head of mission for the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. That was an Australian government funded program. So it was well, well funded. And they had lots of visiting teams, plastics, orthopedics, ENT, um, eyes. And some of them, especially eyes and plastic were committed for the very long term. And they've been coming for, and they still do for 15 years. And the eye teams set up uh, the eye training program. So they, they, they have trained people. And although, so although they were short-term visits during which they did many cataracts and so on and so forth, because Timur in those days didn't have specialists, um, also trained and helped improve quality and did all sorts of things and trained uh, optometrists. So although it was a series of short-term uh, visits, the, the commitment was long-term. So that worked very well. So I'm, I'm very positive about that. S- the same goes for plastic surgery. And mainly, that's mainly clefts. Uh, but also, oh, no, and birds, contractures, of course, which, as you know, is, is a huge problem. And they've been coming for years and everything is well-documented. And they have uh, also trained a local surgeon to do the simple clefts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been a great success. Some of the others, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, here in Sierra Leone, we have fewer, and it's they, yeah, it is a little bit more. Yeah, they, I don't know how useful that is. Fine. Apart from the foreigners who turned up, are, are you still in touch with, with people that you've worked with, colleagues from East Timor and Sierra Leone and, and uh, other, other places, Rwanda? Uh, you still manage to keep in touch? And is there anyone particularly that, that uh, is, has impressed you or, or influenced you? So, of course, I'm in touch here. And what, you know, one of the things that was nice coming back here, although it was pretty harsh, pretty difficult in some ways, was that the senior nurseanists I work with every day were mentored by somebody I had trained 20 years ago. 
So although she had moved on uh, to the ministry with the BSc, she had worked after I trained her for 10 years. And I think that's a pretty good return, to be honest. And of the 12 I trained here 20 years ago, four are still practicing here. A number of them have moved on and a number of them have moved away uh, outside the country. So what I'm trying to say with that, that, that even though I didn't train all that many, some of my trainees have become mentors and that has in, in increased the number. So I'm pretty, pretty happy with that. And although I think uh, the initial program stopped too early, it was then restarted. It was pretty, pretty successful. Now in, in East Timor, yes, I'm in very regular contact. The, the first, well, the very first one, doctor who showed an interest in anesthesia was called Celia. And she took to anesthesia like a duck to water. It was absolutely brilliant. And then one day she decided to quit. I'm still not entirely sure why. I think she may have had a slight scary airway problem that really, really put her off when I wasn't there. Um, I'm not entirely sure. But the good thing, about her, she then went on to do internal medicine and graduate from Fiji Medical School. And I think she is probably one of the best doctors that Timor has. She's absolutely brilliant. And the great thing was that she thanked me years later, said, thank you for teaching me how to do spines and all that sort of stuff, because it, it, it came in handy even during a training. So what I learned from that is something I probably already knew is that nothing is lost. And I know that from my own career where I've done surgery and it's not lost. You learn things that come in, come in useful at some stage during your career. Now, the second one in Timor, he then, that was quite funny. He's, uh, he, was, he was good. I tried to teach him physiology and, that, and asked him to study and that didn't really work. And so he then went on to Fiji as well because we have very good contacts with Fiji. And uh, he did the diploma there and got the MED there and uh, came back as the first consultant anesthetist. And the funny thing was that, of course, once he got there, I had to study for the DA. He thought, oh my God, Dr. Eric was right. <laughs> I have worked hard though. <laughs> and uh, which was so funny because then when we started the DA in, in Timor, he was the one telling the, the new trainees, you have to really study hard. <laughs> and, I thought, <laughs> and I looked at him and said, oh, really? <laughs> and uh, yeah, because of course he he learned, and it, uh, so I'm I'm still in regular contact with him. And then the two more, and recently I've been in touch a lot because of the COVID. They one of the last people I trained there for, uh, to DA level, two of them had gone to Fiji, and are now almost consultants with the MED. Uh, but one hadn't gone to Fiji yet. And I, she went last year but because of the COVID, everyone went back home. And then I thought she'd gone there this year, but she hadn't. And so I, I, I spoke to a number of people in Australia and Fiji and Timor and said, can she not do the training in Timor and then do the exam in Fiji or go to Fiji whenever it's safe? Because 
she, we're wasting time. We have no time to waste. Now three Fiji meds in Dili who can supervise her. And that was, a, Fiji agreed. So that's been agreed. And, uh, but flying from Timor to Fiji is not yet possible. I, I just heard today that Fiji is, is uh, going in harsh lockdown. But yeah, so I'm in, in, in touch and uh, nag them every so often. Have you done this? Have you done that? But they, they do well. I, it's the feedback right. I hear from various people. I'm sure, I'm sure there are many others who've had that experience and, and are uh, very grateful to you for uh, uh, keeping an eye on them, getting their careers going, supporting them. Uh, all that work is tremendously valuable. There's a lot, lot more to it than just giving the anaesthetics, as, uh, as we know. Eric, thanks so much for being with us today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm afraid the clock has beaten us now, so we're going to have to bring this to an end. But uh, uh, I know that uh, we, we were talking before we went uh, started recording uh, about the World Congress, and I gather you're going to be uh, online at that somewhere or other, so uh, people hopefully yep. will be able to maintain contact with you by, by seeing you there. So thanks again. You're welcome, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you're new, there's a whole back catalogue of interesting people for you, for you to listen to. So far, 43 of them. If you'd like to join me on the podcast, do drop me an email to michael.dobson at nda.ox.ac.uk. Or you could suggest the name of someone else that you'd like to hear, in which case, please also give me their contact details if you have them. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally go for your podcasts and join me again next week. But for now, from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.